Hey, I'm back. I took some time for other projects, but I'm going to release more podcasts, so don't worry. I'm excited to be back. Today, I'm here with Topher Obitz. He's the president of Emergency Care Consultants, or ECC, a large emergency medicine group in the Twin Cities. Topher and I were in residency at the same time, and it was really fun to get to talk with him on the record. He's really been a part of the landscape in emergency medicine for the last 15 years as a part of ECC and as president of that group as it's grown. Luckily for me, it didn't take a lot of cajoling to get him to talk today, so I'm excited to have him participate. We get off the rails a little bit, but we had a lot of fun at the local coffee shop chatting, so let's just dive right in. Here's Topher. All right, uh, Topher Obitz, welcome to Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine here in a coffee shop with, well, we're just looking around. We got a football poster. We got a turtle. The turtle Uh, does not want to make eye contact. No, the turtle is sunning itself and it's 60 watt, probably not LED glory. And what did we say about this couch here? We're not on the couch, but. It reminds me of a couch I've been on. It's circa 1983, did we say? Yeah. It's brown, leather, sectional. Poofy, sectional. Well-worn, but not yet. Like, I don't, I wouldn't be concerned about my health on that couch. No, but it, it has some stories to tell. Some coffee uh, bags decoratively hung from a wall with a tin ceiling and track lighting on top of it. So we'll At see what I, happens. And I first thought, thought that poster... There's a football poster on the wall. I think it's the Golden Gophers. But it does first, look like the Gophers. I thought it was the juice for a little while. But, but doesn't it look Gophers. like it's a colorized, like it was a black and white photo that somebody's in colorized? For, <laughs> because it feels like that the numbers are just too crisp and too, uh, too. there's no shadow in them. I think you're right. And, and there, are no, um, <clears throat> there are no guards on the helmets. Wait, well, and they're wearing the leather helmets. So it's clearly like it's vintage football. So now that we've painted a colorful picture of our environment with bells in the background and probably the occasional coffee roaster or coffee uh, espresso maker going, uh, welcome and thank you for talking with me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with my good friend, Brad Gordon. Well, so we've known each other. I was trying to think back of who else I've interviewed. And I guess um, I guess it would probably be, have to be like Hernandez. That was probably, I guess I knew because he was there before you or yeah. before, yeah, before anybody else. I've But... You, we, you and I go way back, so you were uh, a resident when I was a resident. Yes. And then um, you departed the academic world right away, and now what is your role? Well, after being ushered out of the academic world yes. with haste, with haste. Uh, my, my, my final day of <laughs> residency, prejudice. I remember well, I was working a day shift. Okay. And... <clears throat> My At final- Regions Hospital, I just want to like for people who are like you're yet another person from Regions I'm interviewing for my nationally known podcast. At Regions Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. Right. And my final patient comes in. It's a trauma patient. And they it was a gentleman who had a fall from a great height. And as he was falling, he struck a beam and oh. had massive uh, max face trauma. Oh. And this is my final patient of residency. And he needed a crike. And the resident, uh, the G2 resident, attempted and could not get it. I boxed them out. and With your cape? Your scrub cape on? Did you? Yes. Land, I, wore, I still wear that cape. Yeah. 
and I performed my very first crike in my very last patient of residency. Wow. And I felt that finally I had arrived. To Did some you of lift that blade up and drop it on the floor like a mic drop <laughs> and walk out? <laughs> I stabbed it into a See safe bitches. spot on the gurney. Oh, right. That's even better. And left it like a vibrating. Vibrating. Like, yes. Yeah. And I walked out. And you're so old now that it was probably a metal scalpel. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was not. Uh, it was not. You had to load the blade on your scalpel when you did your types. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was 2003. All right. And so I now, believe the next day the next I started my new job. Really? Which is my. Were you, was it like a 4th of July, uh, like you get the whole holiday kind of startup? Uh, yeah, I started on July 1. Yeah. And I, I might have had a couple days off. And that was at Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minneapolis. And I'm still there. Here we are. They haven't ushered you out yet. <laughs> 16 years later. And I joined a private, a, a small boutique-like private independent democratic group called Emergency Care Consultants. And at that time, I was the 17th doctor to join the group. And we were staffing that single emergency department. And um, the group had been around already for about 10 years. And... and the the founders had developed the group predicated on some really interesting value system, which was total democracy. Okay. Um, and that was a like great majority rules, majority rules, but everything is discussed and then voted on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And we, uh, where, where every, where every physician was in, expected to, roll up their sleeves and engage in the betterment of the department and engage in steering of the group and development of the group. Mm -hmm. And those, uh, those values, uh, well, what, what they, what they really did is they propagated even additional values of mutual respect and, uh, rules of the road in terms of, um, discussion and how you treat one another mm -hmm. and um, how we work collectively to manage complex situations. And uh, those values were, were really woven into the fabric very early. Okay. So shortly after I started, about a, about a year later, I was asked to become the associate medical director. There was a new medical director at that time, Chris Kapsner, who is still the medical director. And he's a great guy and was very influential to me and gave, uh, offered me lots of opportunity to independently pursue many different, you know, pretty novel opportunities. Okay. One of the very first things we did is develop a scribe program. And this is back yeah. in the days. Yeah. That was, I remember you talking about that early. Right. Yeah. It was back in the days where there are just a handful across the, a handful of scribe programs across the country. Jayco had never heard of Scribe programs yet. Mm. Um, and so I flew down to Texas, down to Fort Worth or Dallas, one of the two. And I observed this uh, group in action using Scribes. They were using them in a way that we don't typically use them. Uh, they had doctors with two or three Scribes assigned to them, and they would see loads and loads of patients in a very short period of time. Well, we were smitten with that idea, and one of my first opportunities was I was tapped as the person to implement that. 
My gut is there was one other thing happening at the same time. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Electronic health records yes. were being okay. ushered in. We don't have to go do you, into more of that. Do you know anything just, about that? I might know a thing or two about that, but I also know, because I was in communication with one of the people in your group, I think, who was yeah. looking at the yep. technology implementation of that. But go That's on, right. go on, on right. the scribes. So anyways, that was, uh, and, and at that time, I mean, it was, I remember hand printing you know, like, how do you hire a scribe when the job doesn't, there, there's no job description because no one's heard of what a scribe is. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about recruiting people? So I I sat on my trusty, uh, I believe it was, uh, what came before uh, MacBook Pros? What were the early ones? It was like an Apple II GS. No, just kidding. It uh, might have, <laughs> what's after that and before the modern ones? Oh, I mean, it was just like the MacBook, but it was PowerBooks? PowerBook. Old? It was a PowerBook. PowerBook, Wow. So I sat down on my. We're trusty dating ourselves book. extraordinarily bad. <laughs> it's older than that. I used my there. Texas Instruments calculator too. All right, go ahead. <laughs> and hand printed, essentially, advertisements uh, to recruit people. And then I thought to myself, well, where are we going to find someone who's interested in becoming a scribe? <laughs> where would you go? Well, yeah, I know the answer now. Do you? Well, I knew. I mean, you go to people who. Like you either get the voyeur person who like just wants to like watch emergency medicine and that's a little bit tricky because that person isn't probably one you want or yeah, you go you to people that w- are like otherwise don't have a job in medicine but want one and that's sort of like the same pool you go to for like a nursing assistant pool or like entry level people, okay. right? Yeah. That's- Maybe the other group would be like transcriptionists, but my, I know too much know that transcriptionists are just a different kind of person. Well, we thought that we wanted to find people who were pursuing a, a career in medicine right. as a provider. So I I went to the uh, Stanley Kaplan test prep oh. site, and I secretly hung <laughs> the flyers there, and boom, bing, bang, boom, we had our first eight scribes hired. It's pretty effective, actually. And anyways, that was my first, uh, that's where I got my start in administrative work. I didn't know that that was considered administrative work. It was just, you know, developing solving a scribe a problem. Program. Yeah, solving a problem. So, um, those the, that was those were the early days of my career. And it was exciting and I worked a lot. I worked a lot at regions as well and yeah. really enjoyed um, working with residents and spreading my wings and getting involved in just a million different little opportunities. So, to cut to the future, you're the president of that group now, and it's a little bit bigger. <laughs> yeah. But I want to, before we get farther, like, how do you think that scribe program, because then did you go on and take those eight people and try to figure out like, oh, here's a medical record. Here's like what you can and can't do. Here's what, That's right. like here, when the doctor does this, they're actually like, this is what we call it kind of thing. Did you have to go through all that with that eight people yourself? That's right. Well, uh, uh, you'll recall that I had been down in Texas. Oh, right. And we hired some of those scribes in Texas to come up and train our scribes. Got it. Okay. So there's some guidance there. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And then then the ones that they trained became our scribes, and they propagated and helped us train future scribes and so on and so forth. Yeah. And now we have a steady state. Uh, We've grown a lot. Now we continue to have oh maybe 200 plus scribes and uh they continue to be very important part of our workflow and part of our emergency medicine family and do you um do you feel like that like the development of that people management aspect of their 
just continued to blossom because it felt like it feels like that's like now that you're managing the physicians themselves and or at least you're helping the pr- group um, yeah i think so find talent and recruit yeah. talent yeah i think so i think so um i've always enjoyed working with people and i consider myself a social creature and i've always enjoyed getting to know people and yeah. trying to work with them to develop a mutually beneficial ecosystem in which we can all thrive. So whether it's with a patient uh, and their family and making them feel comfortable in the emergency department and cared for, or creating a new position, a novel position, and uh, hiring people into that role and helping integrate them into our systems within the emergency department, or building our practice with hiring of providers and staff. Uh, there's a lot of threads that run through those yeah. different environments. Hmm. All right, so take me more down this story before I get into some more of that people stuff. Right, so um, approximately 2009, uh, there was uh, an opportunity to become the president of our group. And so I uh, was asked in, or you know hired into that role. Yeah. And at that time, our group was still just at the one hospital, but we we understood that the healthcare environment was changing, and that we it was going to be very challenging to be successful as a boutique organization. So we pursued opportunities for growth, and um, we quickly added three emergency departments. Uh, well, one large one, and uh, sorry three smaller emergency departments that had been staffed uh, by hospital employees. Okay. And that was in the Alina healthcare system in St. Paul and surrounding area. And that group joined us. It was United Hospital. And they added a ton of expertise, talent, energy, um, and so forth. And was a very very successful addition, and uh, we we added a, a separate freestanding emergency department that we were staffing at the same time. And since that time, we've had some additional growth, and we currently staff uh, ten emergency departments in the Twin Cities area. However, despite and so we're ten times larger than we were before mm-hmm. uh, in certain sense, but a lot of credit goes back to our forefathers the, the founders of our group because what we have despite the growth we have not swayed from our principal mission and values which are very 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 strong sense of democracy mm-hmm. and engagement and to this very day when when we talk about what's important to us and when we recruit and so, uh, so forth we're really, really stressing what it means to be a, a partner and a democratic equal uh, member of our organization. Mm-hmm. It was really embedded in our DNA. Okay. And did you, um, and so it feels like that's one of the areas where you're like, oh, that really helps us retain our docs because they are, even though they're new, they, um, they matter. They matter. Yeah. And they get that. They don't, it's not, just on paper, but they feel that. Yeah, I think it's very palpable. Uh, and and let's be honest, it, it doesn't it doesn't attract everybody. Not everybody seeks that. Uh, there's. I was going to ask if there's like a level of 
like there's a level of work to that, right? As like a member of your group, like there's a little bit of like, hey, I need you to review this stuff and have an opinion. Yes. Is that true? Running a group and one person does not run a group. Everybody in the group has to run the group yeah. and it takes an enormous amount of energy. Every Everybody who works in emergency medicine knows the amount of energy it takes. Uh, the, the the level of operations to have a successful busy emergency emergency department is enormous. And when you multiply that and add emergency departments and add a, an, an organization overseeing that, it's just relentless. Yeah. And so you really need to attract people who have the energy and the vision to try to make a difference along those uh, lines. Yeah. It's many emergency, many residents seek a career in which they want to pour that energy into patient care and are passionate about it and, and they don't want to be distracted from that. Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. So keep going. Yeah, I was like, which is absolutely, you know, bravo. That's great. We need outstanding cl- clinicians. And we also need to, um, but, the, but there are many others who are very interested in kind of spreading their wings in, in more breadth. Yeah. And and have interest in organizational culture and um and business and and such. And so I guess I want to ask you since I a lot of the mindset I have in talking with the people on this podcast that I um subject to my questions <laughs> is from the mindset of the someone who's fairly fresh out of residency and so what kind of, do you guys have a specific or intentional approach to bringing somebody from residency into community practice? Since you're one of the first that I've interviewed that really has um, been just really not just in community practice, but developing what community practice means in this decade or last couple of decades. And so I'm curious about like what it looks like to transition from your training into like your career. Right. Well, in terms of the early years out of residency, it, we still really focus um, on allowing our new docs to see their first 10,000 patients. And that's because there's such a tremendous amount of learning that continues. We continue to learn clinically throughout our entire career, but outside of residency, those first two or three years, there's there's exposure to so many more different types of patients and scenarios that we really try to focus clinically. And so you just tell them that? Oh, yeah. You're just based... I mean, I'm just... Yeah, I kind of figure you do, but I just want to be real clear. You're like, look, just just see people, smile, and learn how to have fun. Yeah, uh, during that first year, in particular. Okay. Uh, but I look at I, I look at four or five years as being the key year. The first four or five years out of residency is as being really key years in terms of professional development. So the first year, well, each of those years is focusing on clinical work, but the the first one in particular. Uh, beginning second year and beyond, that's when we we try to reach out and look for uh, interests in projects, committees. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a lot of these people uh, coming out of residency have novel ideas that or maybe being hatched a little bit more in the academic environments where they trained, but don't percolate into the community practices quite as quickly and so they're a great um they're they're the sherpas for a lot of those uh newer uh ideas yeah and so that's a great first opportunity 
like entry level project, entry level engagement kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So perhaps somebody is coming out of um, residency, let's say at Beaumont in yeah. Michigan, and Beaumont is on the forefront of, mm, let's say, hypertonic ceiling, for example, mm-hmm. in in the setting of such and such. They may help us stay uh, start discovering. Uh, these novel opportunities and integrating them into our practice mm-hmm. better than uh, somebody who, like myself, who's been out of practice for quite some yeah. time. And I rely on, you know, the journals and the conferences. So that's a great opportunity to start start to get involved clinically. Yeah. Um, and I haven't, I'm going to stop you there because I haven't thought about that very much because I think about my clinical practice has been compared to most, probably any other person I know from the whole career has been very low in clinical time because of all of the informatics and administrative work and research I've done. But what I found is that if I'm doing that a low amount, but in the residency program, it keeps you fresh. But I hadn't heard about the concept of like your new hires from residency actually kind of being your influx of, Hey, there's actually a new way to do this. And I, that's how we did it always here. And that it sounds like you, yeah. like that's an asset for, oh, yeah. uh, for that, new new grads can try to rely on like hey remember some of the stuff you're doing and because you're not going to have a group necessarily that has been doing it quite like you did that's right that's okay. right yeah so it's very interesting and um and plus they have there's a heightened energy you know they haven't hit that steady state of that steady career state uh because right emergency medicine is a long yeah. arduous career right and I didn't want to believe that when I was a, when I, well, right. Well, you're like comfortably naive, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I thought I could see work 20 shifts a month. No problem forever. Yeah. Let me tell you folks, <laughs> results may vary. <laughs> go on. Okay. So go on. So that's how you, you've got these new people coming in. You, two three four years in you're kind of like seeking out how how do you might you want to right become more involved in our group yeah and i i really try to avoid trying to uh steer them i i, I i'm a big believer in allowing people to develop uh a wide variety of interests and breadth and following their heart and their interests uh and and frankly i want to see i'm eager to see our people early in their career develop these types of interests inside of medicine and outside. Uh, so people who are passionate about rock climbing, for example, mm-hmm. they, I believe that they develop a mindset that is very healthy to our organization. They can demonstrate balance in life to, to one another. They are, they're a healthier physician therefore providing better care. I'm a big believer in, you know, once again, I was talking about how how emergency medicine is such a long and arduous career. You can't survive just grinding. Well, a few can, but most people cannot survive just grinding in the emergency department for 30 years. Well, I was just going to ask you, I mean, I've been having the same conversation with a few other people came up at our alum day a few weeks ago and I kind of made the assertion that I've I probably can think of maybe on one hand even just a couple people that I can't think of a either a vocational side hustle like project or just an intense 
involvement in some outside activity like rock climbing or something like that. And that they're just really like, no, I'm 40 to 50 hours a week seeing patients in the ER for 20 years. I just don't see a lot of that, but I'm curious from your broad knowledge of your group, do you have some people like that? Uh, who who have the breadth of interest outside of work? No, the opposite. Oh, oh who yeah. are just like I'm just all yeah. about working another shift, and that's really all I'm interested in. No, I mean there there are a couple, a couple. Okay, that's but, good to know because I'm like those, I think there's some, but not but many. Those ones who do, they're they also happen to be the ones who require less sleep than others, and they still achieve they 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 work more than anybody else, but they still have interest outside of work. Okay, so you still think they have interest outside of work? Yeah, like you know, they they remind me of Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton used to. Do you know how much? Do you know? Do you know how many hours a night Bill Clinton? I, don't know, I thought it was like three and a half, four hours. Yeah, or something yeah, like that. yeah. In fact, he would keep people. He would he would president during the day, and then he would just have guests chat. chat. Yeah, till the wee hours, and they and his guests would be falling asleep, even though he, you know, they're right. They're uh, sitting, uh, having a one-on-one right. conversation with Bill Clinton. I, that's how I feel right now. I yeah. feel like I've got Brad Gordon is yeah. kind of my Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> Just gonna let that go. Cut. You were saying, go on. Anyways, um, so yeah, so those so the, I kind of those who are working a little bit, but yeah, so there's like you try to actively develop those people into their their yeah. You see our patients. You have a fun time doing it, and you also. X. Yes. Okay. Let's get involved in something else. What do you want to do? What's your passion? Yeah. Okay. And and I don't I don't directly get involved in sitting them down and saying, okay, we need a we need to come up with a plan. Like you of, got a problem. You don't have a thing. No. Okay. What I what I strive to do is create an environment in which they have capacity to explore the things that they're naturally attracted okay. to. Okay. Got it. And so that environment, but however, we do actively talk about that. Okay. About the features that we do, that that we have in our practice, why we have those features, and what they're there for. And and we're very active about saying these features are here for wellness, but they're also here to allow exploration. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like interesting people. I like people who are into the, you know, exploring the, the edges that's that's what gets me up in the morning i you know they're 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 more interesting to talk to yeah. they bring fresh ideas they stimulate you they stimulate me um so uh it's you know um one time i met a um i took care of an interesting patient once it was this guy he was eh, maybe 75 years old but very youthful and vibrant smart guy very um engaging and he told me that he retired when he was 40. And I was I was young at the time, and I said, oh, tell me how I can do that. Yeah. And he said, trust me, don't. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I retired at 40, and then I started a new, new career at 42. And, he, and I, now I'm 75, and I work full-time. He was doing some really interesting things. He was, yeah. uh, you know, he was kind of an inventor. For sure. Starting com- companies. But he said, all my old... The people that I grew up with, they're sitting around playing cards, and I'm surrounding myself, but surrounding myself by interesting, motivated, energized, youthful people at the age of seventy-five, and it stimulates me every day. Yeah, and so that always stuck with me. Now, yeah, because on some level, don't retire because really, like you're likely to end up well. You may transition to something else, but it's unlikely yeah. you're going to fold up 
the tent and like sit around and do nothing for 40 more years. That's right. Yeah. I, I, if I were to distill his wisdom, I would say uh, what he meant is don't be idle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know, as a, I'm talking a little bit of this with my parents and others and, um, and I really was struck by Atul Gawande's book on uh, being mortal. I think it's a mortal book that where he talks about the oh the long term care system and um, but really what it comes down to is like finding purpose at every stage of your life, <laughs> uh, including when you may have no physical ability to, to like you know to lift something. Like what is your purpose then? And and I yeah. was struck really by that like. Okay, if I can be planning, not planning, but considering stages of my life or maybe surprise stages of my life around an illness, like what purpose will I have during those times? Because I think the moment you don't have purpose, even day to day, you're adrift, right? And you're just kind of like, and, and you can be adrift for a while, but often your purpose in that time is to find the next thing. It's still a purpose. Yeah. It's not really to just literally like I don't want anything. I just want to So anyway, that's what I fear is is not having something that's pulling me in. And it can change and it can be you can go in one direction for a while, but always being curious, I think is yeah. really really Well, that's where I think I don't know. I I when I search my heart and talk to others about emergency medicine, it's got this yin and yang to it like that because on some level you know it's classically known as this burnout specialty and here you and i are talking about like you probably most people can't do it alone like and that doesn't mean you know, like you have a different job or something like that but it's this and i don't love the word balance but it's a little bit of um it's this it's like this dichotomy of on one hand, emergency medicine, there's nothing that grounds you more than I think emergency medicine because you just walk in, you're taking care of people that are rock bottom or put there, like they've been there by choice for a long time or they have been there by circumstance for only three minutes. And you've got a bunch of people you're working with, doctors and nurses, who have been spending their careers calibrating their bullshit detector. So it's like truth. <laughs> Um, in medicine right there. I've Sam Stelflug was one of the guests on this and we talked a lot about jujitsu and truth and how there's this immediate truth about jujitsu. You're either being um, overtaken by someone else or you're not. Like it's very it's very binary. <laughs> and and I think a little bit about that in a medicine where and it, particularly my administrative career and I, I'm curious if you have some of this as well is like if I can't sell it like to my colleagues or to like a, a triage nurse, <laughs> like, I don't know if I can, like, I don't know if I should be doing it or I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and that's where I kind of, that can be a little bit too, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's, it's not exactly that cut and dry. Cause sometimes it's a, but, but that's the group of people that really helped me keep grounded and why I think I've found that it's a great compliment to other parts of life where you're that curiosity and you're looking around because yeah. it, it keeps your, you got this sort of heads in your cloud, the clouds aspect, and then your feet on the ground kind of thing. Well, um, yeah, having breath in your life and having curiosity keeps, keeps your senses sharp and keeps your eyes open. 
One of, one of the things I've been doing recently, this is a little side note, but I've been interested in writing. Okay. And so I've been with writing, I, 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 I do some daily writing exercises. Not every day, mind you, but I try to do it most days. Where um, the, the, the one I'm doing right now is really interesting. Every day I set a clock for 10 minutes. So it's, uh, the first thing I do when I wake up is I open up my, uh, what was it again? Mac, not a MacBook. A Your PowerBook? PowerBook. Did you, like you kept it for this purpose? <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I think of an object <laughs> and, and it can be any object yeah, in my past, in my present, something that I own, something that's uh, on the other side of the planet. But like a physical object. Yeah. Like a tangible. Object. And I describe it. I start writing to describe it. And I think of it through my senses. So what does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? How does it interact with its surroundings? Right. Um, like that sofa. Like that sofa. And so imagine for 10 minutes every day, starting your day by just describing an inanimate yeah. object. And what you, so that's where you begin describing it. And quickly, and you can go any direction you want when you start to write. And what it does is it draws you into describing things and takes you down pathways of description and pathways of how you, how it interacts with your um, consciousness. And it's really, uh, when I look back on what you write, it's, it's, you can go, it's amazing where your mind can go. And for me, it's an exercise in just uh, kind of stretching, you know, the plasticity of my of my consciousness. So the reason I do it in the morning is because that stages my thinking for the rest of the day. So if you do it just before you go to bed, then you go into dreamland and you might have some killer dreams, but uh, you wake up back in your normal static mind. Mm -hmm. But if you start your day that way, it's really it really enhances how you uh, interact uh, with your surroundings and how you view them. Mm. And so I'm not doing this to for anybody else to write, but it's uh, for anybody to, re to read. Yeah, uh, I do this to to help me broaden my interaction with my uh, with the outside. World. Yeah. How quickly do you think you started feeling general benefits from that? Almost immediately. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of like the first time you ever go for um, acupuncture. It, it, people describe the first acupuncture experience as the most intense. People sometimes describe for days you have this euphoria. Uh, I would say the first couple times I did this, it was really almost euphoric afterwards. You, part of it is out of amazement of about what you can, how you can describe the mundane yeah. and make it interesting. However. Um, you know, it's it's there is the law of diminishing returns, but you still I I actually get a lot of value when I go back and I read what I've written. Well, that was my next question: was do you go back and read it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like as part I of have, that ten minutes, file. or are you just like yeah, uh, no, no. Afterwards, oftentimes, but I have this one file, and the newest is on top, and it goes all the way back in the history of all this writing. Huh. I've had on and off, and I'm currently on on a journaling practice. It's not um, structured quite like that. And I've focused it a little bit more on um, like a very brief sentence or two as just a means of t t dipping my toe in once a day. And 
and I had the same kind of experience and I still have like that kind of like, and I'm doing it at night, like almost the literally last thing I do before I go to bed as a reflection, because I think it's, I think writing for yourself, whether you call it journaling or practicing writing, but with the, not any concern about its quality or it's like how others will consume acceptance it. by the outside acceptance world. or its structure or its rule or following or avant-gardeness. Um, I, it's really interesting to me how it, how somehow it's different than other things I've done, like just straight meditation where you're not actually doing anything with your hands. You're not writing because I think it slows you down and makes you, makes you forces a purposefulness yeah. that you don't get in other places. So absolutely. it's fun to hear you saying yeah, that experience. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 well, it brings you places and it, it, it reminds us that um, we are this, <laughs> I know this is about emergency medicine, so we're going a little bit adrift of that, but well, I'm going to bring it back in a second, but go for it. We are, you know, we're, we are, we're essentially stardust and you know, uh, I, I I just read. Have you ever read? Oh, I'm sure this is Brad Gordon. I'm sure you oh. have read this Cosmos by Carl Sagan. I've read some of it, but I haven't the whole thing. What I need to read it? Sorry, it's not that well read. <laughs> it's non. It's not a technical manual. Every technical <laughs> manual is ten x. <laughs> Anyways, that's some good good reading for any any interested parties out there, and it helps. He he's he's very poetic, but he also describes the origin of matter and helps try to put in perspective how matter has been reorganized into us as humans and quote-unquote higher life forms. And so when you start letting your mind explore these things, I think it helps provide great perspective and kind of what our purpose is. And even though we are just here for a blip, uh, it, it helps me appreciate that there is a purpose. And here we can go back in emergency medicine. I mean, what a, what a, for me, emergency medicine is the one of the really marquee opportunities in this world to make a difference at the public health level, at the individual level. Yeah, here we are, everybody, and and I'll I'll take a little bit of umbrage with the notion of being duped by patients. Uh, I I know that there there are some patients out there who will dupe you. Uh, however, my philosophy anytime i open a, enter a patient's room is there's somebody there asking for help yeah and everybody has problems in this life and maybe your problem is that you're addicted to pills or maybe it's this or maybe it's that and maybe it's something that is a little some might consider shady you're still there looking for help and we're there to offer help um and that's one of, that's a great privilege to be able to to offer that for people and i it think is, isn't it yeah and absolutely and it's tricky because it takes constant effort to remember that, I think. I mean, so a little bit of connection to that for me is I've been, and this isn't a long time, but probably for about a month and a half, I've been journaling before my shift um, and just pretty free form about what I'm feeling and what my intentions are um, because I think it's helping me transition from whatever I came from to that next eight and a half hours and all mine are about that long. So, and, and, you know, in general, the practice that I'm in at regions is like many, it's generally, there's no 
there's no no one will give you the downtime unless you take it. So you really have to find those moments of peace to make it through that stretch. It's intense. And where do you find it? Well, so I'm starting by starting that journaling helps me create the plan for that shift a little bit based upon that. Now, it's not nearly as explicit as I may, may be making it sound, but through some of my meditation practice that I've been developing, which is, again, not real heady, but it's just simply being centered and a little bit like you described that initial euphoria is like we are all just moments away a blink from being in that same place because it's just another thought it's just we all feel blocked and so for me right now i'm trying to walk out of rooms with just a moment a breath of like okay what did i learn and get ready for the next thing Um, because those are the moments where i feel like i want to reflect and kind of have this like is there anything else i'm thinking is there anything else i need to do did I commit to something like getting the water, which I've chronically forgotten? I'm like, can I get some water? Can you tell I need to go pee? And I'm like, yeah, I got to get the nurse to help you, blah, blah, blah. Um, so for me, it's been about that. Like, I'm trying to find micro moments of awareness. And then I'm also setting timers during my shift to just check in with myself. And it's typically like a halfway and a two hours before the end yeah. as a means of like, did you dump all of your shift into no documentation? Did you right. dump, um, you know, just like what are you going to take on in the last hour and a half to get yourself either home or to get some decisions made that you've been, maybe you've been avoiding because they're complex like management decisions that you're like, oh, I'll stall and get something. So uh, that's, that's where stall. I'm finding it. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, I, I think, and I can relate to that. Um, I'll tell you that for me, when I'm working a shift, the time when I'm utterly relaxed and focused is when I'm sitting down in a chair talking to the patient. Yeah, um, That's my kind of time. That's the tranquility right. uh, that I look for, which is they're, I'm asking them some questions and they're kind of telling their story. And I try to sit back and listen and try to, be um, almost as though they're on stage and I'm at the play, and it's very. It's it, it took me a long time to recognize this, but I, I feel very relaxed when I'm in that setting. With a, with one big exception, I find myself becoming very anxious and unnerved when they start telling a story that just doesn't add up and doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, like describing the. <laughs> My Achilles heels when someone's describing neurologic events that don't follow any neurologic pathways. Yeah. It's just not possible that this is happening. That's that's the one exception. But for the most part, sitting and just listening to someone talk about their complaints and then asking them a couple questions and learning more about it, if I can really engage in that, I find that just a very, very relaxing and rewarding experience. Yeah, And then I quickly transition into the step out of the room and then run like hell to manage all the other balls in the air yeah. until you have another opportunity to um, dip yeah. from that into a another patient encounter. Huh. And do you, like as your experience has evolved from when you were 
pre-president and you were probably working a higher volume of shifts, did you do you recall a sense in how, how that's evolved? Like maybe early on you thought X was important, I needed to do X faster or better and yeah. put my energy here versus not? Or is Well, I used to think that to be a good ER doctor was to be fast. Yeah. And uh and I used to be I was very fast. And now I am I'm not very slow, but I'm quite slow. <laughs> I'm quite slow. But uh, what uh, what I think, uh, my opinion of outstanding medicine, of the best emergency medicine, is to be an educator for the patient. You know, I mean, the, the technical aspects of emergency medicine, you have to be competent there. But there are a lot of very, very competent, very good emergency doctors. But to go to the next level, in my opinion, is to be a good listener, uh, to be a good educator for the patients and their family, and to really uh, emote that you're there for them. To me, that's great medicine. Uh, to be to communicate, to listen, to so that when they exit that uh, healthcare environment, either going upstairs, going home, or elsewhere. I want them to feel that uh, somebody was on their side, really doing everything they can to to help them. To me, that's great emergency. So, yeah, patient satisfaction data drives people crazy, and I get it. But for me, that is the most meaningful measure of good of patient care of, of anything that comes out of yeah. the, of the administrative uh, requirements. How does that affect your relationship with like your new hires or the people you've already been there a long time? Like, do you? sense that you're in conflict or you're rare to think that do you think your whole group is right there with you do you think it's like i mean my gut is it's a continuum right yeah it's a continuum and and i'm not naive enough to think that everybody believes uh, or uh, agrees with me uh, however when i'm yes you are you're, you're that. No, <laughs> when i'm recruiting i am really really zeroing in on um looking for those qualities when i'm meeting people right when i'm meeting someone who wants to join our group, for example. I'm looking for people who can engage in that environment uh, in a a way that I think is meaningful. Got it. Um, And that's helpful in a number of ways. First of all, I think it's great patient care, but also we're looking for people who are going to be a partner within our organization. And those same um, skill sets that you use with the patient I, I want them. I want those to be used when we are speaking with a hospitalist, right, or a hospital administrator, or uh, ourselves, or each other, yeah, or a nurse, or or nurse, tech, or, yeah, with everybody, with the with the world, you know. Yeah. So character and personality are really, really important for me. That's what I look for. Yeah. And I don't care about patients per hour. I, I mean, correction. I care about uh, patients per hour, <laughs> but uh, to me, everybody's fast enough. It's it's not about moving the meat. It's yeah. about providing the good care. Yeah. And do you? Um, we've talked a little bit about like as you're in meeting people that might come work for you. Um, oh, where do I want to go? I kind of want to. I learn about like. Do you see? And we've talked about like developing this niche or this. Um, whatever compliment that looks like. Are there any other behaviors? I kind of want to get this to exhaustion. Any other behaviors you've seen that you affiliate with or you've like, hey, the people I've seen successful or myself, 
they are doing this. I don't, you know, they clearly have an exercise or they're eating well or sleeping or whatever. Uh, well, I don't you may know, not know about them, but I'm just I don't curious. know as much maybe about the mechanical, uh, the habits of daily living. Yeah. But um, authenticity. Okay. Creativity. Uh, breadth of interest. Uh, those, I think, are really important uh, ingredients for people who can be successful in 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 in, sure. in a manner that I think is uh, in a, in a manner that I measure success. Um, let's talk about the um, breadth of interest. I mean, we talked about that earlier. Right, right. Um, people who have a passion for something outside of emergency medicine doesn't have to be a distraction. I think it augments. Um, because once again, we're talking about, you know, we're on the front lines of public health. We see people from so many walks of life and it's so critical to be able to relate to people and in a non-judgmental way and to, uh, be able to offer care without, you know, we all have prejudices, but to be able to be comfortable around uh, people who are different from yourselves. And I think one of the ways you develop that is by being different yourself and not being uh, being bold and not being afraid to explore things that uh, other people don't explore or going against the tide. I just respect that. I respect people who are bold enough to, to, to um, you know, um, who can uh, go against the tide and be able to look at the world differently than yeah. anybody else. Yeah. And and to talk about it. Right. And share what they've seen and Yeah. 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 Huh. And everybody has that capacity. Everybody does. Yeah, that's uh, true. Do, some people are raised in an environment where that is not uh accepted and uh they're uh, it, it needs to be suppressed and I don't think that's healthy. Um I think we should celebrate our differences. Do you see people get constrained by something that would prevents them from developing that like a mindset or financial situations or purchases or relationships or other things. Well, I think fear is a big constraint for yeah. sure. Um, Can you say more about, cause I'm someone who's probably grappled with, I've under recognized some anxiety in my life. I feel like and I'd like to learn more what you like, what you'd have to say about fear specifically. Well, everybody wants to be, everyone wants to be liked or most people want yeah. to be liked. And I think that is one of the principal drivers of fear. So, um, if if you are um, afraid that what you believe in is going to offend somebody or not be accepted or or will cause rejection or um, if you're going to be ostracized because of what you're pursuing, um, then there's a natural, a lot of people will be fearful of that and, and not pursue it. And so, in that way, um, fear holds them back. Yeah. Uh, there's also fear of the unknown and, um, you know, xenophobia and um, those tendencies are quite strong. And some people are, probably some people are born with a greater degree of that than others. I like to think that emergency medicine uh, really attracts people who are a little bit outside of the box. Yeah. You know? uh, I always like those those algorithms where they show where you choose uh, how you choose your medical specialty yeah um and basically based on your tendencies or your yeah your, yeah your, tra yeah, your character traits kind of thing yeah and it always gets to the end um are you nuts and if it says yes then you either go into emergency medicine or anywhere else yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're like the box of misfit toys yeah 
That's funny. Or the island of misfit toys. Friends, uh, you know them, um, that were in Antarctica for, um, they went and worked down there. One was a flight nurse and one yeah. was on the, and apparently there's a saying for the crews who work in Antarctica is like the first year you go for the adventure, the second year you go for the money and the third year you go because you don't belong anywhere else. <laughs> and I, and that doesn't exactly match emergency medicine, but I definitely think, um, yeah, to, to deal with the wave of humanity. Like that's where I think a lot of this, um, yin and yang management of your life, I think, that's right. Um, is important. Well, also, um, organizationally, people think that they can't climb the ladder if they're different. Yeah. Um, they think that if you are a, um, if you're not buttoned up and uh, correctly, if you don't look corporate, you can't do well in a corporate environment. Yeah. And I could not care less about that, Yeah, frankly. I, well, it's often that like that environment needs a dose of misfit to function right right I mean, that's where i've been yeah and i'm not saying i'm not advocating that we have you know clowns running organizations no. uh but and, and by the way i think many organizations are run by people who are very creative and and you know perhaps a little weird and yeah um there's there's a little bit of a misconception that that the corporate world is run by uh the pinstripes that's right. not always the case maybe wall street but uh, elsewhere i don't think that's quite as true Right. Huh. Well, I want to pause here and just say um, I didn't intentionally sit you so that you get to greet everybody who comes to this random back room and then sees two people holding a microphone and was like, whoa, whether it's a little, what, about a four-year-old girl? We're freaking them out. Yeah, that little kid got freaked out. Like all of a sudden, pop around the got freaked out. The mom's like, kid's like, oh, that looks fun. I'll go pull on those cords. Uh, anyway, but thank you for. I'm like, I look over my shoulder, I'm like, oh, they're already gone, but I'm sure their faces are like, hello. Um, I'm going to greet the next one. You should. Oh, right. our next guest is here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Welcome. Between Two Burns. <laughs> I just watched Paul Red last night, two nights ago, on like a little Between Two Firms because there's a movie now. Oh, oh, yeah. Right. And now there's like a promo of Paul Red where he just. Paul Red ends up walking off. Spoiler alert. It's like, <laughs> okay, I'll check that out. I'll check that out. How does it feel to be the least attractive and the least effective person in emergency medicine? That's basically Zach's opening. <laughs> How did you succeed in Hollywood without looks or talent? I like when he asks Uma, or not Uma Thurman, um, Charlize Theron, <laughs> if she was, uh, how she got cast for Monsters, Inc., because <laughs> uh, of course she was in right, Monster. Monster. What was the name of the big the Monster? Monster. I was Any, like, it wasn't Monsters. It was just Monster. Mon- I, one of the two, but he called it Monsters Inc. Which <laughs> <laughs> uh, I almost ended up watching that last night with my three-year-old. I digress. Um, okay, so we've been talking a lot about people and humanism and emergency medicine. Are there any aspects that? Um, that of your business life that you think you would like, I'll call them early or just rank and file or whatever type of like frontline ER group members would know about, like whether it's contracts or billing or anything like that. Is there any area where you're just like, man, I wish the world would get this better than they do. Like I've now seen it. 
um, because I think you have a, I want to say unique, but amongst all of the ER docs out there, you know, there's not a lot of people in roles like yours. Um, and so you get perspectives that others don't. So I'd be curious if there's anything from that world that you kind of try to amplify or when you have the opportunity, you bring them up, whether it's in a group meeting or in one-to-one. Uh, yeah, that's a good question, Brad. Um, I, it's the only kind of ask. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it is a unique role that I have. I mean, there aren't too many people who have it. And, right. um, and each practice it can be very different from other practices. So they can have different values. Um, some can operate much more like a traditional business. Others can operate much more like a practice and focus more on the topics of like governance and, and, and such. Um, Cause even others are even just really like at like the independent contractor level. Like we just all happen to share the same common contract, but otherwise we don't share anything else. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what I will say is by and large, the, the business of emergency medicine, at least when you're just dealing with professional fees and charts and things like that, it's, it's not entirely complex. It's a, it's a fairly simple business model. Yeah, fee for service. It's like exactly. It's literally in the words. And you we're give not, a service. You just have to document the service. And exactly, exactly. And you have to have supporting contracts in place to help uh, guide rates. And you have to have an infrastructure in place to collect money and to pay people for their services. But there are no widgets. There's um, by and large, emergency medicine doesn't rely on marketing and, um, you know, traditional kind of commercial. Uh, right. Like getting your latest pra- practice member out on billboards so that people that's right. realize there's a new plastic surgeon in town or something like that. That's right. That's right. And uh, uh, furthermore, um, most practices, not all, but many, uh, I should say, uh, operate uh, kind of like law practices where they they zero their accounts. And so there isn't uh, so much uh, op- need for investments uh, in infrastructure and bricks and mortar and things like that. Now that can, in different regions, there are a lot of freestanding emergency departments and investments in other ventures. Some groups own buildings, some own urgent care practices and such. Um, so there's a little bit of that. But uh, in our environment, we're, we're mostly about physician services and provider services. Yeah. So it's pretty simple. I think that the, um, the personally, I think the area where we need more expertise and more physicians is uh, within emergency medicine is within the quality, patient safety, and data uh, world. Okay. Um, there are, uh, that's something that we've been thinking about a, a lot recently, but uh I think that uh, we as an emergency medicine community can do better. And uh, particularly as more tools become available, more data is available. You know, we've always been as a practice, as a, as a specialty, we've always been very innovative, but this is an area where I think we can continue to really take the lead. And um, so as a practice, I would love to see um, more uh, fellowships developing Mm -hmm. more of an emphasis on, uh, and there always is. There already is an emphasis, but greater emphasis on uh, on on that particular arm of the pra- of of the specialty. Yeah, as you've grown your group, or just even in general, like have you had? I'm sure you've had some types of intentional like 
development of people's quality on like a, like either through profile based reporting like your doctor x on zero to you know a to z or um you um, have individual feedback through yearly one-to-ones or you have 360 evals are there any key components of like that feedback loop of quality improvement that you found either work well in your group or your group members are they accept and look forward to as compared to feeling like they're being put under the microscope uh good question again great great question brad yeah uh we used to rely more on reporting of data um in terms of performance looking at patients per hour uh you know percentage of level fives in critical care and sure and we still report that but it's become far less important for us um the we were talking a little bit earlier about patient satisfaction that's a, that's a uh, the, uh, that's very important to us as a group, and I think it's also very important to the um, the hospitals and the systems. Uh, and so th- there's an emphasis on that. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> but th- I think there are many more opportunities where we can do better with reporting. Um. You know, at this what year is it? 2019. So yeah. Let me yeah. He checked his watch. Good. And is that just? I keep year? the year on my watch. Yeah. Is that the only it's thing that tells you? Yeah, it's just the year. <laughs> you have a. You have I a have a very time. long now kind of view of time. <laughs> like the in your Stardust reference. That's a great invention. Hey, uh, a, a watch let's, that just shows it the let's year. Edit this out of the podcast. You and I go into business. Yes, we make a year watch. A year watch. All right. <laughs> Uh, where 50% were we? Percent precision. <laughs> um, we were talking about things that oh, the oh. feedback loop and how your group, yes. like you've moved beyond, or maybe not beyond, but you're complementing sort of charge and speed. Yeah. So, so currently the world is obsessed with sepsis and yeah. um, and reporting on sepsis and compliance with um, bundles Bundle. and compliance and yada yada yada. And I think that's great because what it's doing is it's forcing us collectively to uh, enhance the care. I think we were, there was absolute room for improvement on a, uh, you know, a disease that has very significant morbidity and mortality and we're getting better. Um, But there's a downside to that, of course, which is that it was very complicated and very challenging for us to be compliant with it. And um, so looking, I think when we look at our next, as a specialty, as our, as our next big tar- series of targets, I would challenge the, the thought leaders in emergency medicine and in medicine in general to help us achieve those goals in a more streamlined and achievable fashion. Let's set ourselves up for better success. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean to be critical of people who are leading sepsis because we are making a difference. Well, now, the disease is getting redefined as you treat it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and improve it. But how can we have the same impact in a more user-friendly um, space for for us as the providers? Um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of letting my, I'm staring off into space wondering, like, where do I land when you say that? And I'm not coming anywhere quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Any example or... Like oh, I have for, a li- oh, for the for the next uh, uh, yeah or just like yeah like any area particularly or where you're kind of like 
hey, sepsis a little too complex or it's a little bit, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, like my experience is like as a nation, you end up fixing these measures, right? And then the, the plate tectonic shift as you're deploying them and all of a sudden you're sort of constantly going to last year's target and either That's true, yeah. people have learned a new normal, which some people are already going to while those are catching up and there's just sort of this. Well, uh, well, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of another area that I think we've been able to very, very elegantly make improvements. And I think that's with stroke care. Yeah. And maybe it's a different disease process. It's a little bit simpler in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, but we've been able to improve care using algorithms that are, uh, that are, simpler and more um, accessible and stage us better for to be successful. Yeah. I think a lot of people, and this came up, where did I hear it? I don't know. Like the role of emergency doc, I think is migrating from like soloist to conductor in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, because I think like sepsis care you could do it. You can't do it all alone. Like you have this team of people that are doing simultaneous tasks, and you're, you're diverting those resources from other places. And you and and I think sepsis same thing, particularly when you get into like just neurointerventional, neuroradiology, neurology, neurocritical care. There's like five consulting groups that are all different, yeah. and distinct, in addition to you about one disease state, and probably the outcomes are moving. But it takes that level of intensity. And a lot of times, your doc has both the get out of the way some days and stop the train the other days. And that's a very, very, for me, talking about fear, that's some of the trickiest roles is like when to intervene with three other consultants taking the train. And having the guts to yield. And having the lack of ego to, to just say like, this isn't about me. Yeah. And... Anyway, so I'm kind of bringing that up because you brought up stroke. Yeah. And I think the sepsis the same way. And I'm trying to think of, I think, um, you know, having an embedded ED pharmacist and antibiotic selection is like another area where like often landing on a dose frequency and antibiotic is becoming a team sport. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Not just for sepsis, but for almost any condition. Well, well, I love your analogy of solo soloist versus conductor to be a conductor which is what we need to do and i i look at the um for me i think of it more in the leadership role but one of the skill sets you need to do is be able to give up a tight grip on the environment and to develop the team to make the decisions and you oversee it from ten thousand feet and and to show up every day with a different team is unique in lots of areas of the world. I mean, maybe I just, I don't know. There are other places, but often you have different nurses today, different skill sets, different attitudes. They all came from different places. They might have underslept. They might be partially, you know what I mean? Like in different consultants who are at different times of day on different resource availability on weekend with a different patient, blah, 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 blah. So different willingness to, so all these variable inputs and different attitudes, and then be able to take all of that and go like today for this patient, Right now, for the next 30 seconds, this is the right choice. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And and residents get good training in that. Um, 
That's good to hear because I don't. I wouldn't have made. I I think I usually hear that residents come out, you know, running teams because they just are constantly being put. They're they're constantly trained in the highest acuity areas of an emergency department. That's right. Well, they're they're used to they they by and large most residents work in trauma centers. Yep. And so trauma team is a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, it's it's almost the perfect example of how trauma teams right. work are, are so effective. And everybody knows their role, and uh, everybody is able to uh, yield their ego for the greater good of the patient and for the system. Um, and so, I, I, I actually think it's the people, the, the 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 people who are closer to residency who are perform best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people, um, our, our our minds, our personalities, as as we go through our lives, they become. Um, less plastic and much more stuck in our ways. It's hard to change. And it's hard to, uh, we, we, we believe we become better doctors throughout our career and in many ways we do, but we, we uh, not everybody can maintain the skill set of working in a team quite as well. Right. Um, uh, you, you get used to being the captain and uh, a good captain allows the troops to to uh, allows them flexibility yeah well and i think and that's hard to give up well and i think i it's taken me i don't know i don't know how long till i think i'm a reasonably better teacher but i think a lot of academic teaching is like relinquishment of like the like you have to figure out how to step into the details and i'm often talking about like Hey, I don't know why you got that CPC, but and it's often met with like, "Oh, you want me to cancel?" I'm like, I could care less about this one today. It's more of like I want you to think about the next one and trying to figure out yeah. how to like how you're using it. And I think that's where I've been trying to figure out like how do I refine that opportunities for feedback in the moment to nurses, to PAs, to other colleagues with sign out like to deliver it. Um, well, having learners in your day to day clinical site. Is probably a good thing, is what I'm hearing. Oh, it- absolutely. I mean, I think while I am 100% certain, like, you know, I don't know, 70% of the order of medicine is, quote, is faster at getting to like a workup and a plan. Like, I know that it, it does take in academics a special amount of, not, not that it can't be developed, but it's just like, it's a different task to be supervising people at different stages in their medical career and to, learn how much leash and when to take the leash completely off and yeah. um and then handle the fallout of that both positive and negative and try to turn those all into positives um i'm continuing to learn that skill um but it's i you know i try to think of it now I mean, I think we all think about like, you know, that person's going to take care of me someday. <laughs> That's like, it all comes around back to like stardust and like, I'm going to be that 80 year old retired physician that nobody even knows I was a physician who's going to be like, sir, do you know what, you know, like, you know, and I'll probably be in there with sepsis or I don't know right. if I'm lucky I'm 80, but, that, <laughs> but anyway, I guess that's where I'm, I don't know exactly where I just took us, but I think, um, that conductor, I think is where we were at and, and I, I, not that there's anything explicit about it, but I think 
it'll be interesting to see the the proportion of patient care in an ER that c- continues to move in that direction from you know whether it's laceration based care you know all the way up to like sepsis or trauma or code resuscitations that's right and it's the hospitals uh, f- from their viewpoint i think it's a little bit of a pendulum and i'm not quite entirely certain where we are right now in that pendulum in terms of um, learners and a broad staff, but I think that most of them get it that having a broad team in our complex departments leads to better care and greater value. Yeah. Well, and that it's been interesting as I've spent a lot of my life trying to improve non-emergency department care through informatics is you know, the, the nature of hospital-based care or outpatient care is just like you're not all together. And it, and on some level, that requires that you're the conductor because you know you're not going to be there all night with the patient like you are in the emergency department. So you have to set up the chart and the orders, your note, so that some night nurse who you never will talk to right. takes care of your patient in the way you intended. On the other hand that's where it gets it's can be i think people can get this mindset that's not very team oriented in the hospital because you just you do you round and you give your recommendations or you place your orders and you move on and i think in the emergency department you know we're the first ones to have the nurse come back up and like you're gonna do what are you sure like that's not doesn't happen another place you don't get that immediate feedback yeah very thankful for it i don't know that was a bit of a tangent but um do you there was one other question, but I now I've forgotten it. Um, is there anything you want to bring up? On red. Our lovely podcast. My yeah. favorite color is red. 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 If you were a record, um, yeah, I'm not going to go there. Um, what are there any parts of? I've kind of asked you about like aspects of business and emergency medicine, but in general, are there any things in life that you would like to promote on my highly read, nationally first ranked postgraduate emergency medicine podcast? Well, uh, you know, I guess here's what I, I would have to say. I, I, I still think emergency, med- well, I think medicine in general, but emergency medicine is still and will always be a very, very compelling and important career. And so when I think of kind of the future of our specialty and how it fits into our world overall, I, I would encourage our young people to consider continue to look for ways in which they can impact the our world positively Mm -hmm. and emergency medicine to me is just the ultimate opportunity Mm -hmm. and it's because once again you can make a difference in people's lives but also you have you're working in an environment that is so um complex and broad that it affords opportunities to go in so many different directions with your life. It can be so compelling. Um, I originally entered medical school thinking I was going to become a cardiologist, and which is a great specialty. But I quickly, after doing my first rotation in cardiology, I discovered it was too narrow for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I seek breadth and, you know, a, 
open landscape. And not to say that people are, there are plenty of cardiolo- brilliant cardiologists doing really innovative things. Mm-hmm. But for me, for mindset, I, I was looking more for an open landscape mm-hmm. where there are, you can go a million different directions. And that's what keeps me going. Um, and uh, I would encourage anybody who has a similar mindset or a similar um, uh, energy for uh, a blank canvas that emergency medicine is a great career. A great place to do it. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that's, I think, um, and there are segments to careers, I think, um, where I think it's common that people in Ridge Medicine, I mean, burnout's a word, but where you pivot and you might just create a different segment of your career and you might have, that might be both like what your focus area is or what your actual paid gig is um or the location in which you practice because there's so many different settings in which you can practice yeah um i think for me it's been a lot of trying to just continue to be kind of present not plan it too hard but also not think about the opportunities that are out there and um the trajectory that you're on and um not be afraid back to what you'd said to like to explore that and whether that's just for a short time um, yeah or go for it baby go for it don't hold back i feel like we need a like a video of us jumping in the air with a fist thrust and and freeze frame yeah and and then then an um, 80s style or frozen there yes uh, the music we gotta figure out the music it's gonna be it's it's gotta be a synth uh and it's gotta be I, i can hear it i'm not gonna sing it but i can i can hear it yeah, I mean, the prototype is like greatest American hero that comes to mind, but that's I can't actually sing nice, it. But nice, yes, you know, believe it believe or, or not, not, I'm walking, walking on it. it. Yeah, we both we did that pretty yes. well, didn't yes. we? Yes. <laughs> um, we'll close with that. Believe it or not, I'm walking on. Wow, because that was my question was going to be: Would you recommend this? You have some not so young ones now, right? Um, would you recommend emergency medicine for your not so oh, young yes. ones? Oh yes, I talk yeah. to them about it. Yeah, I try not to talk too much because then I'll, I'll scare them away from it. Yeah, because oh, dad likes it. Yeah, it must be terrible. Yeah. However, um, yeah, my, my I, I talk to them about uh, not about emergency medicine, but when they think about their lives, how can they do something that's gratifying and important for the world around us? Yeah. Um, and cre- I talk to them a lot about being creative and not being trying to be bold and uh, not trying to go with the flow, go against the grade. Yeah. And that that's sometimes short term, especially probably when you're in a developmental age where you're like trying to figure out where you fit. That seems real scary. Yeah, exactly. But that's yeah. the group to pay right. off. Yeah. They, they, there's an urge to break free from the herd and also a strong pressure to not be different. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be pretty scary to be young. And especially, I think, I don't know what it's like to be, you know, a teenager in the cacophony of feedback loops. That's the internet, but I know. <laughs> oh Lord. It's, I mean, and I, and I, I sort of try to keep myself out of like, it's different than it used to be or something. It's just always different, you know, but, but, I, I try to have a lot of respect for how that's evolving. For well, these days are going to seem like the good old days because you know our grandchildren, you know, Brad, they're going to have chips in their brains. And oh, they are. Yeah, they're just going to go through a Rolodex 
internally with their internal monologue where they can um, access not only the World Wide Web, but it's the be a post-memory world. Yeah, th- they'll even be able to connect with our brethren who will be living on Pluto by that time. Mm. Uh, be hive of consciousness, exactly, like the Borg. Yeah. Or, huh. Yeah, I'll be preparing for that. Yeah, I, I, our, 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 our kids will be able to um, major in futurism and um, yeah, a double like major post-apocalyptic apocalyptic rebuilding, or I'm trying to think of other like Cormac McCarthy level. I don't, that's very negative sounding. <laughs> it's almost. The, I love Cormac McCarthy. Oh yeah, that stuff is thick and rich. It's uh, thick and rich. Yeah, it is uh, full strength energy. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. All right. Well, that feels like a great place to stop. Thank you. For, for, this is a real pleasure, Brad. Uh, I've me. walked on air this whole time. I'm going to just keep going with it. It has been thick and rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's not go any further. Let's leave it there. Thanks again, man. It was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. Please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio. There you can also leave a comment, tell your colleagues, or tweet me up. It helps spread the word. You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.